Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. Welcome back to Parsha Perspectives for today. We have the privilege this week of studying Parshas Vayeshev. And we know that Maisa Avosim and Labanim, all of Sefer Bereshis, is not just studying ancient history. We're not just learning and reviewing what happened long ago, but we're actually reading what is meant to be our filter to be able to interpret what's happening today. They are Parsha Perspectives for today. And as much as the world has changed, so much has stayed the same. Particularly in our parsha, when we see the animosity, the enmity, we see the tension, the strife among brothers that we tragically continue to still suffer from. There's so much to learn from this parsha. I want to thank our generous sponsors of the series for the year, Becky and Avi Katz, in family in memory of David Grossman, Becky's father. Our learning should be the Nismash, David Ben Menachem Manish. Also, this morning is sponsored by Karina Ben Smi and Kohn. Torah learning in memory of her father, David Ben Smeen, who passed away the 19th of Kislev 20 years ago. And by Ben and Dina Isaacs and Howard Stricker in loving memory of Howard's parents, Evelyn and Dr. Eugene Stricker, Chava, Bas Moshe, and Yisrael Ben Baruch. Thank you to all of our generous sponsors, our dear friends. We thank you for your support and your partnership. Page 198 in the Arts Scrolls, Stone Chumash. I hope you all have a Chumash. So great to see everybody live together back in person. And I'm so glad that you are here. Thank you. It means so much to me. Yaakov settled. This is in contrast, by the way, to last week's Pasha, where the Pasha begins with Yaakov sending a message to his brother Esav through Malachim, through agents. He tells him, Im Lavan Garti. He doesn't say Im Lavan Yashavti. He says Im Lavan Garti. A ger is a stranger. I was passing through. I was an outsider. It's true, for 20 years I was at Lavan. 20 years is a long time ago. Think about where you were 20 years ago. 20 years is a very long time. So yes, Yaakov says, I was with Lavan 20 years, it's a long time. But do you know the entire time I was there, I was an outsider. I participated, I contributed, I benefited, I immersed myself in what was the best of being there, but I was able to be mindful at the same time that I was an outsider, I was a ger. Here, Vayeshev Yaakov. It doesn't say Garti, it says Vayeshev, which is a resident. I took up residency. This was part of my identity. I was fully there. Be'eretz Megurei Aviv, Be'eretz Kenan. Back home, back in the land of a father, back where he belonged. And we know Rashi tells us that Bikesh Yaakov Leshev B'Shava. Yaakov just wanted some peace and quiet. He just wanted some peace and quiet. Who doesn't want peace and quiet? Who doesn't want tranquility and serenity? Who doesn't want to just sit by the pool under the palm tree, sipping the pina colada, learning some parsha, some chumash, some Torah, and relaxing? But the Rebbeinu Shalom Almighty said, that's not for this world. That's not for this world. Rabbi Yerucham, Rabbi Volba quoted his Rebbe, Rabbi Yerucham as saying, you'll never find a rocking chair on a factory floor unless they're producing rocking chairs, I guess. But you won't find a rocking chair on a factory floor. Why? Because it's very clear that the factory floor is a place to work. That's why you're there. You're not there to sip a pina colada. You're not there to kick back and sit back and relax. The reason you're on the factory floor is to work. So there is no recliner. There's no leather recliner on the factory floor. That's up in the executive's office overlooking the factory floor. But on the factory floor, you're there to work. So Hashem says, look around this world. You're there for the blink of an eye. We're barely here. If we're lucky, 80, 90, 100 years, 120 years, and the span of eternity, that's nothing. It's nothing. It's a blip on the screen. So why are we here? We're here to work. However, this is the factory floor. We're meant to make a difference. It doesn't matter what stage of life. It doesn't matter whether professionally you are retired or still working. But in life, we're all, we have work to do. The candle's still burning. The light is still on, the factory is still pumping. And therefore, Yaakov wanted to be Keshleshev Beshava. He thought, what, well, Yaakov was lazy? Yaakov was lazy? Chalila. Yaakov, the Bechira of us. Yaakov is the quintessential of our patriarchs. He wasn't lazy. He wasn't looking for a way out to cop out. Yaakov thought, how do I serve Hashem if I just have some calm, some stability, if I can just have some peace, some quiet? Then I can really serve Hashem. Hashem said, that's not how you serve me. You serve me when you're agitated. The pearl, the oyster produces the pearl through agitation. You serve me when you are challenged. We serve when we're tested. We serve when we are pushed. We serve when we recognize that we have work to do. We have effort to make. Life doesn't come simple. And it's the result of that effort where we have growth, 
where we're able to break through. Ela told us Yaakov Yosef ben Shalas Shona Yoreh Sachab Betzon. Yosef is 17 years old. He's a shepherd. All of our great patriarchs were shepherd. Our great leaders first needed to do an internship as a shepherd. We've spoke about and studied about this in the past and the notion of his bodedus being comfortable in our own skin, being okay with alone time. The shepherd didn't have a phone. Shepherd couldn't text or watch or listen to podcasts. The shepherd wasn't FaceTiming. The shepherd was alone, but he wasn't alone. The shepherd was with Hashem. The shepherd was with nature. The shepherd is with himself, learning about himself. And being a shepherd is a prerequisite to being a spiritual shepherd of a holy flock of people. We don't do that today. And why you smicha should be a requirement. You have to go out and be a shepherd. I don't know, for like a day, maybe? I don't know if we could last much longer than that. Get the cool staff and wear the... I don't know how long you're a shepherd. A day, a week, a month. Imagine you tell your parents. Imagine your grandchildren came home. I decided what I want to do. Accounting? No. Law? No. Pre-med? No. I want to be a shepherd. I want to follow in the footsteps. Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. I want to be like Moshe. I want to be like Yosef. I want to be a shepherd. But you see that the Zion Rom, the Zohar calls the great leaders, the seven guests that we welcome to our sukkah, the Zohar calls them the seven holy shepherds. They're not the seven computer programmers, the seven doctors and lawyers. They're the seven shepherds. To be a shepherd, to be a shepherd, is a prerequisite to be able to shepherd Hashem's children, our flock. So Yosef is a holy shepherd. He's a holy shepherd. Hunar has been a billah, and a zilpah. We're not going to review the beginning of the Pasha in this sense. You could listen last year or the year before where we focused a lot on the tension between Yosef and his brothers. We focused on what created that tension. Where is the breakdown when there's not even communication, conversation, when we focus on our differences rather than our similarities? How does that come to be, that animosity, the envy that leads to the fracture and the divisiveness that we continue to suffer from until this very day? the hatred, the criticism, the judgment that we continue to suffer from until this very day, the problem was already depicted in our parsha, and the solution is already in the Torah. We just haven't learned the lesson for 2,000 years. We just refuse to learn the lesson. We'd rather be at each other's throats, we'd rather fight and judge than find solutions. So Yosef has these dreams. We're moving right along. Yosef has these dreams. And he tells his brothers dreams. Why is he telling his brother's dreams? Is Yosef guilty for precipitating this? What does Yosef think exactly is going to happen here? He has these dreams that he's got these big brothers, and in his dreams, in both of the versions of the dreams, these big brothers bow down to him, they defer to him, they concede before him. So he says, hey, guys, listen to this dream I had. So interesting, I had such an interesting dream. What exactly did he think they were going to say? Oh, that's fantastic, why don't we just do it right now? We'll bow down to you right now, little brother. Why should it just be a dream? Let's bring it into reality. Let's bow. What did he think was going to happen? So I saw a commentary that says, you know what he thought was going to happen? What he thought was going to happen was, he's the youngest of the brothers, Tilbin Yaman. So he's saying to them is, in, in the dream, God gave me this divine inspiration. I had this vision where even though I am the youngest, the least developed, the least mature, the least accomplished, look who I could become. And if that's true for me, the youngest, all the more so for you. Yaakov said, even with that good intention, probably shouldn't share those dreams. Even though you think that's the message inside, that's your vision of the message, your version, probably still not a good idea to share those dreams. But nevertheless, even though the dreams were not meant to be shared, Yosef actually, Yosef triggered this jealousy, this envy among his brothers, somewhat understandably the brother's reaction, but you know who was not triggered? You know who actually saw some prophecy in those dreams, held on to them, believed they were going to come true, thought they were foreboding? The Aviv Shamar Satavam, the bottom of page 200, Perak Lamad Zayan Pasagidalf. The brothers became jealous, Vaviv Shamar Sadavar, but Yaakov held on. Aviv Shamar Sadavar, Yaakov held on. Zakhtarashi, what does it mean? Shamar. The word Shamar means to safeguard, to vigilantly safeguard and protect, to Shamar. So what does it mean his father Shamar Sadavar? I misspoke last week and I applied these words Shamar Sadavar later, but they're here now with the dreams. Shamar Sadavar. Rashi says, Yaakov Yaakov sat and waited and wondered when will they come true. Yosef had these dreams and Yaakov didn't dismiss them. 
Yaakov didn't just criticize and reject them and say, Shashtil, don't tell anyone, don't post it, don't blog about it, don't vlog about it, don't anything about it, keep those dreams to yourself. Yaakov said, whoa, there's something here and I can't wait to see what's gonna be. God was giving Yosef and through Yosef, me and us, a glimpse and an insight, a vision of what's going to be. He held on and he waited, he longed to see what would be, to see what would be. Famously, I, I say it all the time, the Oiv Yisrael, the Aptarav says, that's what it means to be a Shomer Shabbos. It's not to observe Shabbos on Shabbos, to be a Shomer Shabbos, Shomer Sadavar, is to long for, to wait, to anticipate, to get ready for, to prepare. To be a Shomer Shabbos is Sunday through Friday. That's Shomer Shabbos, Shomer Sadavar, to prepare, to wait, to long, to get ready, to get excited. Wait till you hear tomorrow, what's today, Tuesday, tomorrow night's interview with Rav Machlis. Rav Machlis Shlita, the husband of the late Rebetzin Machlis, Zichron Lavracha. They host 200 people a Shabbos at their home, their apartment, the tiny little apartment in Yerushalayim, in the home, overflowing out of the home, throughout the courtyard, 200 people. So I'm behind the beam, we'll, we'll talk to him. How do you prepare? How do you shop? How do you get ready? 200 portions of chicken soup, 200 pieces of kugel, 200 plates and forks and not. How do you do that? How do you do that? How do you run a meal with 200 people at the meal? When in the week do you need to start getting ready? How do you look forward and anticipate Shabbos? It's unbelievable. So Shamar Sadavar Shomer Shabbos. So Rav Dessler has a comment. Yaakov was holding on. Listen to this Rav Dessler. It's in Mechtov Melio Chelek Dalad. He says the following. The way of the righteous is not to experience something in life, something meaningful, something that should give you pause, something that should make you reflect, something that you should record and write down and hold on to. The righteous don't just live it in a fleeting temporal fashion, drop it and move on. The righteous grab it and hold on. They grab it and hold on. The Medrash Rabbi here writes, You know, when Yosef came and reported that dream, you know what Yaakov did? He took out his pen and he took out his pad. Today he took out his phone, he took out his iPad. He took out his laptop, he took out his keyboard. You know what Yaakov did when Yosef said something to him that he thought had divine significance, that he thought was significant and meaningful? He recorded it for posterity. He didn't let it be fleeting, he didn't let it pass him by. The Medrash ends, the Medrash concludes that Ruach HaKodesh, with divine inspiration, he realized, don't let this go. Don't move on. Don't simply drop it. It took more than 22 years. Yosef sold. Yaakov is alone. He's waiting. He's longing. He's wondering. He refused to be consoled. He's inconsolable. And it took 22 years to understand what these dreams meant. But you know what happened when he did? He took out his little pincus. He took out his little notebook. He opened his little Word document, his file. And he said, I knew that day. It was on Tuesday. It was on Yutes Kislev. Yutes Kislev. Hey, look, Yutes Kislev. Don't forget to come to the Big Five. Bring it tomorrow night. And it was Tuesday, Yutes Kislev. And it was at 9.44 that Yosef told me this dream. And this is nothing to forget. I want to hold on to this. The Medrash tells us the opposite is true with Rishayim. You know, if you're wicked, if you're evil, if you, feel the, if you feel the world is filled with randomness and chance, then there's nothing worth holding on to. You live life in super speed, and you just let go, and you move on, and you never pause, and you never experience, and you never record for posterity, and you never review. And you never try to understand the meaningful things that are going on in life. Who places the story of the Meraglim adjacent to the story of Miriam. We're supposed to learn, but we didn't learn. Life's experiences are supposed to teach. The greatest classroom is life itself. And the curriculum is coming from the Almighty every day and all around us. And when we stop and we pause and we reflect and we learn and we write and we record and we review, we become students of life. And when you're simply just moving on, then you don't experience life at all. Some people are constantly racing to the next thing. They're moving on to the next experience. We're not experiencing life and we're not recording it. 
And I thought that was such an interesting insight of Rav Dessler, that Ve'aviv Shamar Sadevar. Yaakov had a notebook for each child. We have a good friend who lives in the community, Kanai Nahara, six beautiful children. Each one has their own notebook since they were a little baby. And when they'd say something cute or adorable, they'd write it down in their notebook. At each of their bat mitzvahs or bar mitzvahs, the father in his speech would take out their notebook and read a few cute things when they were three, when they were six, when they were nine, when they're 12. I don't know if he's still doing it. They're married. Please God, going to have children. I don't know if he's still recording him. But, but if you care, how many of us have, I remember they once said something cute. I don't remember who, where, when, which child, what they said, but once they were cute. We lost out on the opportunity. I remember once I was in a place and I had an insight and a breakthrough and I saw something and it changed me, but I don't remember where or when or what it was or how I was changed. But imagine if we took out a notebook, a journal, and we journal our life. That's, that's this week's Parsha, says Rav Dessler. V'aviv shamar es hadavar. Shamar es hadavar. Do we care enough to record, to journal what happens in life to be able to continue to learn from it? Chapter 37, verse 11. The same Pasuk, Sorry, we just read that. Moving on. The brothers go out in order to check on the sheep. They go check on the sheep. Are they really checking on the sheep? Look at the word S. Top of page 202. Chapter 37, verse 12. The brothers go... Liros est son. They go to see what? S. What's over the word S? Two dots. You know why the word, there are two dots over the word S? Were they really going to check on the sheep? Who were they going to check on? The shepherd. They, they posed as if they were going to check on the sheep. Liros est son avihem. But they weren't going to check on the sheep. They were going to find the shepherd. And now Yaakov tells Yosef, your brothers, they went to go look for you. Your brothers are out there. He says, go. Come, I'll send you to them. So Yosef says, here I am. Go check on your brother. Bring back what's going on. And we say every year there's a theory, others have, that the reason Yosef doesn't ultimately get in touch with his father, even after he's sold into slavery, and after he rises to a position that he could easily get in touch, is because Yosef assumes, based on this Pasuk, that just like Avram kicked Yishmael out of the house, and just like Yitzchak ultimately rejects Esav, so I guess I'm the reject. Yosef assumes when my father sent me out, and when I went out, I ended up in the bottom of a pit, and ended up in a foreign land, and my father's the one who started that, my father's the one who sent me to go see my brothers, where I found my brothers, and they put me in the bottom of a pit, I guess I'm the reject of this generation. So why reach out and get in touch with my father? I guess I'm the reject. I guess I'm the reject. Another shameless plug, we'll talk to Rav Machlis in the book about his wife, Henny Machlis, Allah Shalom, unbelievable book. They have four, I believe it's 14 children, and one of them went off the derech at one point, was not living an observant life. And there's a whole chapter written by that daughter of how her mother interacted with her in that period of her life and the way her mother loved her and did the opposite of making her feel like a reject. When her other children were around but someone was there, she'd call over the daughter who was off the derrick and say, come, did you meet my daughter? Isn't she beautiful? Isn't she amazing? I'm so proud of her. I love her so much. She writes in the book about how her mother treated her, not when she was at her best, but when she was living a life that should have most disappointed her mother. So Yosef says, every generation has the reject. I guess I'm the reject of this generation. My father just sent me out of the house. I ended up on the bottom of a pit. I ended up in the back of an of a 18-wheeler truck on my way being sold down to Egypt. I guess I'm the reject. I guess I'm the reject. So he goes, and he runs into a man. Who is this Ish? Last week we had an Ish. Last week's Parsha we had an Ish. Yaakov wrestled with an Ish the whole night. This week we have an Ish. Last week's Ish was the devil. This week's Ish is an angel. This week's Ish is the Malach Gavriel, who Yosef's lost. We have another name for the Malach Gavriel. We call her Ways. Yosef's lost. He says, I can't find my brothers. But what does the angel say? Hamalach Gavriel. Look at this Pasuk. I love this word. You ready? Vayimtza'eyu Ish, v'hinei Torah basada, vayish'aleyu, I'm on Pasuk Tezvah, verse 15. Vayish'aleyu ha'ish, this Malach Gavriel, this angel asks, matevakesh. What are you looking for? Now, we would translate as, Matavakesh means, what are you looking for means, you're lost. 
you, you don't have Waze, you don't have a GPS, you don't have Google Maps, you don't even have MapQuest, all of a shalom. You're lost. <laughs> remember when MapQuest was the coolest thing that ever happened? You remember that? You're like, it's so cool, you could print that out and it gives you directions. There's even a little icon, a left arrow and a right arrow. It's amazing until the first wrong turn. Then you might as well crumple it up and throw it out the window because it was useless. So, Matavakesh, you look lost. You have no idea how to get where you're going. The angel, the Malach Gavriel says, no, how can I help you? How can I help you? I'm looking for my brothers. So, oh, this parsha is so unbelievable. He doesn't say I'm looking for 22234 Holly Hawk. He doesn't say I'm looking for the Carvel on the corner of the Dunkin' Donuts. He says, I'm looking for my brothers. I'm looking for my brothers. So there's, like in all of Torah and in our parsha in particular, there's the surface of what we're reading, and then there's the conversation beneath the surface. There's the panemius, there's the depth of what we're reading. So what was the Malach Gavriel? What was this angel saying? Matevakesh. He wasn't saying, what's the address? What are the coordinates? What are you looking for? What was he saying, Matevakesh? Listen to the Kotzker. Oh, the Helega Kotzker, Rebbe of Menachem Mendel of Kotzk. I love the Kotzker. ish. This angel, if the angel last week that Yaakov wrestled with the whole night is his alter ego, if the angel last week is the worst part of him, his alter ego, the voice of self-sabotage, then the angel this week is that angel, the good voice, the angel that brings out and encourages us and pushes us to be the best version of ourself. And the angel says, you know how you become the best version of yourself, Yosef? You need to ask yourself and always ask yourself and come back and again ask yourself, Matavakesh, what are you Mavakesh? What are you Mavakesh? What are you looking for? What are you longing for? In what way are you a Mavakesh? So that's the Kutzker. Kutzker very succinct. The Kutzker's teachings in Torah, he didn't write his own Tzvarim because the Kutzker I've shared before felt, I'm going to write a Sefer so a Jew on a Friday night will lie on the couch and will fall asleep and my Sefer will end up on the floor in a puddle of drool. For that I should write a Sefer. That's what he famously said to Kutzker. So he didn't, but his students and his Talmidim and the generations of Hasidim that came from him did record. And they record his teachings in other ways. So the Chidush Arim writes, Sif Seit Tzadik, he says, This angel is telling him, this angel is saying, Yosef, you're coming from the Heliga home of your father, Yaakov. You grew up in the base Medrash of Yaakov Avinu. You came from the greatest Rosh Hashiva, the greatest Mashkiach, the greatest living example, and you're on your way down to the worst, most corrupt, most morally depraved. You're going into the worst place, the din of iniquity. How are you going to survive? How are you going to more than survive? How are you going to thrive? How do you come out of the protection, the cocoon, the pure base Medrash of Yaakov? And how are you going to make it? in a place of corruption, moral decay, in a place of temptation, desire, how are you gonna make it? And the answer was, matavakesh. You gotta ask yourself over and over, your, are you a mavakesh? And what are you mavakesh? What are your aspirations? What are your goals? What are your yearnings? What do you long for? What do you want? What do you want? This is recorded to us in the Lev Simcha. B'Shem Rabbi you know what you should be asking? So the simple understanding is matavakesh. What are you a mavakesh? In what way are you, what are you mavakesh? What do you want, a nicer car? A nicer house? Matavakesh, what do you want? Less wrinkles? What's your, what's your bakasha? What is your longing? There's nothing wrong with fewer wrinkles. There's nothing wrong with having fewer wrinkles. There's nothing wrong with having a nice car. But if you get to ask for one thing, the angel taps you on the shoulder and says, one wish, I know we should all answer that I can have all the wishes in the world, but one wish, and the angel, let's say, knows that trick. And he says, one wish for real. What is your bakasha? Is it nachas from your children and grandchildren? Is it more yirashamayim? Is it to make a difference? Is it to fulfill the reason you're created? What's your bakasha? Matavakesh, you live your life, what are you living your life for? Dr. Pelkovitz, the great Dr. Pelkovitz likes to put it, What's the bumper sticker on the back of your minivan? Used to stay station wagon. What's the bumper sticker on the back of your minivan? Is it Ivy League or bust? Is it Yerushalayim? Is it having the best midos? 
Is it doing the most chesed? Is it being a mensch? What's the, what's, the children who grew up in your home when they graduate, if they said, what was the most important thing to my parents? What would give my parents the greatest nachas? What would their answer be? That's the kotzker. The good angel, the Malach Gavriel, when he finds Yosef, and Yosef is in this transition point. Yosef is in this pivotal moment. Yosef is on his way down from the base medrash of Yaakov, down, Pshuto Kemashmo. He's going down into the din of iniquity, to the place of moral corruption. He's going into the place of the greatest temptation. He can easily lose himself. And the angel says, your moral compass is always asking yourself over and over again, Matimavakesh, what is your bakasha? Are you a mavakesh? What are you looking for? What are you longing for? What are you longing for? And you know what the answer is? It's in the Pasuk. It's in the Pasuk, said the Beis Yisrael. You know what the answer is? Ma tevakesh. You know what you should be serving, looking for? Ma. What's ma? My mother's here. Ma. I'm looking for you, ma. I'm so happy you're here this week. Ma tevakesh. What's the ma? We're looking for ma. M-A. That's what Jews call their mothers. Ma. Ma. When they're whining, it's ma. Ma tevakesh. What's the ma that we're looking for? So listen to what the Beis Yisrael said. Ma tevakesh. Shayomar amavakesh is ma. And what's the ma? Ma shemelokecha shomei machim liira. Later in Sefer Dvar, Moshe Rabbeinu says, Ma hashemelokecha shomei mach. What does Hashem want from you? Simply to have more yira shemayim. So what are you mevakesh? Ma mevakesh. You should be mevakesh the ma. The that should be what your mavakish. What is yeah? What is Yosef answer? Psst, look at this, look at this magnificent conversation. What does he answer? You know what I want? I want some achtus. I'm just looking for my brothers. I want to feel like a brother. I want to be accepted. I want to be loved. I have a different mother than the rest. They're only half brothers, and they remind me of that every day when they shove me in the locker or when they call me a name, or when they, they don't include me, because I have a different mother, even though we have the same father. And you know what I want? You know what my bakasha? You know what I'm evakesh? You know what I long for? I just want to fit in. I just want achtas. I just want, I just want my brothers. I just want my brothers. So ma mevakesh, says the good angel, the Malak Gavriel, wherever you're going, whatever you do, and wherever you'll be, you will stay grounded. You'll have an anchor and a compass if you ask, what's your, are you a mavakesh? Are you a searcher? Are you longing or are you settled in? Are you apathetic and complacent or are you mavakesh? Are you mavakesh? The Pasuk says both in Tehillim and Divrei Ayamim. We say it in our Psuke de Zimra every morning. Yismach lev, mavakshe Hashem. Yismach lev, mavakshe Hashem. Let the hearts of those who seek Hashem be happy. The Chavetz Chaim says, you know, normally, normally when you look for something, you're only happy when you find it. If you lost something and you're looking for it, you don't say, well, it was a fun search. I didn't find it, but at least I had fun while I was looking. Said nobody ever in history. If you're looking for it, the success is measured by whether you found it. If you're looking for more wealth, you invest, you're entrepreneurial, and you have business ideas and you fail, you don't say, well, it was fun while we went bankrupt. We had a good time on the way down to poverty, to failure. You say, if I failed, I failed. But when you're looking for Hashem, Yismach Lev, Mevaksh Hashem. Says the Chavetz Chaim, Hashem's promise is that if you're looking for me, the whole journey itself is rewarding. Yismach Lev, the satisfaction, the joy, the happiness, the pleasure of the search itself is incredibly rewarding. Even if you didn't find, even if you're struggling to still find, just the journey is in fact, just the journey is in fact incredibly rewarding. The Divrei Yisrael, the Majid Rebbe says, The Divrei Yisrael, the Majid says the following, Yisrael Taub. He says, I thank my good friend Rabbi Mirza for this. The Medrash Tanchuma says that the word Anochi is an allusion, is a reference to Torah. Why would Anochi be an allusion to Torah? No, we got a live audience here. We got some live ones, I think. <laughs> Because the Aseris Adibros begin, Rav Sadjigon says you could reduce, in fact, the whole Aseris Adibros, the Ten Commandments you could reduce to one. The whole 613 can be reduced to ten. And the ten can be reduced to one. And the one can be reduced to the opening word. All of Torah can be condensed into the word Anochi. Hashem says, hi, I'm here. 
That's it. The rest is commentary. I'm here and therefore I want a relationship, therefore I'm in charge, therefore I love you, support you, guide you, therefore there's meaning and purpose to life, therefore I have a mission and mandate for you. Everything else is commentary, but it all begins with Anochi. Hi, says God. I'm here. Notice me. Look for me. Seek for me. Seek me. So Anochi is Hainu Torah, says the Medrash. And when you're learning Torah, it can't be that Torah divides. Torah cannot be a weapon. Torah cannot be a weapon to clob others over the head. Torah is not a weapon to criticize and judge. Torah is not a weapon to divide. Torah should be the ultimate uniter. Torah should be the ultimate platform to bring Jews together and unite. Says the One of the 48 ways the Torah is acquired in Mishnah Pirkeiavos, Brisa in the sixth chapter of Pirkeiavos. One of the 48 ways the Torah is acquired is Dibuk Chaverim. You can't learn Torah if you go live on an island by yourself. You can't learn Torah if you're in a room that you hate everybody there and you call them a name and you reject every idea that they raise. A prerequisite to Torah learning is Dibuk Chaverim. You have to have a Chevra. You have to have a good Chevra. You have to have a good Chavrusa. You have to have good friends. You have to connect. Ayin Sham Ba'avos. So Zeu Sharamaz Es Achai Hainu Ava Va'achva Anochi Mevakesh. The Torah's Mevakesh Achai. Es Achai Anochi Mevakesh. My brothers, that's, what, that's my Bakasha, said Yaakov back, said Yosef back to this angel, the Malach Gavriel. You know what I'm looking for? I'm looking for my brothers. I just want some Achtus. I just want to fit in. I just want to be together and feel that we are together. That's what I'm looking for. But the Majra to the Basis Israel takes it a step further and says, Anochi is Mevakesh. You know what the Torah is Mevakesh? Achai. The Torah wants us to be together. The Torah wants us to feel together. That is what the Torah is about. He has a second pshat in Majra to the Divri Yisrael. Anochi, HaTorah mischanenes mevakeshos mi Yisrael es achai. Sheyu ba'ava v'achtos. That's what the Torah wants from us. It's a beautiful idea of Rav Kook. Gemara calls Tamide Chacham and Balei Trisin. Balei Trisin. Balei Trisin means, what's a tris? I don't mean in Israel, the lower so you could sleep in the, the dark out shades. What are trees in our shields? They protect. I guess like the trees protects. But the, uh, the trees in our shields. So why are Tamid HaChachamim called the guardians of the shields? So Rav Kook says in his Einaya, his commentary on the Agadic sections of Talmud, such a beautiful pshat. He says, in the Melcham Teshot Torah, when Tamid HaChachamim and the Beis Medrash are going at it, they're going at it. And you think your svar, and I say my svar, and your svar is ridiculous, and here's why I poke a hole in it, and here's my svar, and I can... So the attitude of the Talmachachim and the base Medrash is not that I take my weapon and I destroy you, it's that I hold up a shield and I protect what I believe. My goal is not to destroy you, my goal is to stand for what I believe. They're not called the guardians of the bow and arrow, the guardian of the sword, the guardian of the, of the Uzi or the rifle. They're called the guardian of the shield. Because Tamidah Chachamim don't go on the attack. Tamachachim doesn't go on the attack. Because Torah is supposed to bring us together. And Torah is supposed to unite us. And Torah is meant to be the glue that holds us together. So we don't go on the attack. Rather, we protect what we believe and we protect what we stand for. Okay, Periklamitzayim Pasuk Yudches, moving along. The brothers now see Yosef. They see him from a distance. And the brothers approach them, they conspire against him, and what do they want to do to him? They want to kill him. They want to kill him. Now you can ask a very simple question. These brothers want to kill him. First of all, there's an amazing chsam sofa in our parsha. It's on parsha's vayechi, but it applies here. He wants to know, the brothers see, and they want to kill him. When Yosef is about to sin in our parsha with the wife of Potiphar, a beautiful seductress, a beautiful temptress, over and over relentlessly pursues Yosef, Yosef has nothing to lose. He's far from his family. He has no reputation. He has nothing to lose to give in to this temptation. He's a single man. He's a handsome man who women peer over the wall. They throw themselves at him. And Yosef has nothing to lose. Where does he muster the strength, the courage to resist her temptation? We all know the Chazal. What gives him the strength? To muster yuk no shell of if He sees the image of his father. Maybe he looked in the mirror. And he saw he was the spitting image of his father. So he looked in the mirror, but he saw his father and he said, that's pasnasht. It's beneath you. It's beneath you, Yosef. 
Don't do it. You got this. We'll talk about that more another time. So the Chassam Sofer wants to know, how come the brothers are about to kill Yosef? They conspire to kill him. Remember at first they're going to kill him. They let him live in the end, and thank God for that. But they're ready to kill him. Why didn't the image of their father pop into their head? Did you ever think about that question? Me neither. Some Sofer did. Thank God. Why didn't they have Demusta Yukno Shalaviv? Why didn't they think? Why didn't they see the image of their father like Yosef does? Why didn't it save them? You know what the Chassam Sofer answers? He says, there are a lot of Yetzirahs that we face, a lot of urges that we have. We spoke in the Shabbat with Russia. It feels like a lifetime ago. We spoke about the pause between the urge and the action. That the way to live a healthier life, the way to overcome that voice of temptation is to realize that the urge does not have to lead to action. They're not synonymous, they're not simultaneous. But there's a pause between the urge and the action. We talked about this in Torah, we talked about this in modern research, and we talked about this in motivation. To create the pause between the urge and the action. So there are urges that we can create that pause. You're tempted to sleep in, you're tempted to eat the wrong thing, you're tempted to react the wrong way. Take that deep breath and take that pause and we can do it. He says, but there's one urge, there's one drive in a person that it's almost impossible to have a pause. And you know what that is? Hatred. When a person is filled with hatred, when you have sinna, you lose your mind. We've seen people quite literally lose their mind when they're filled with sinna. LeBron James the other night, happened to not be a fan, threw an elbow and made someone else bleed. And anyone who saw the highlight, you'll see that I don't even remember his name on the opposing team. I don't even know what team it was. He lost his mind three times going after LeBron. A person who feels injured physically, emotionally, or spiritually and gets filled with a hatred and a vengeance loses their mind against their own best interest. How many people have brought themselves down in the pursuit of attacking someone else? Chassam Sofer says these brothers were filled with such hatred, such sinna, that is the power of sinna. The power of sinna, the power of anger and rage, we become different people, our judgment is clouded. So, says the Chassam Sofer, Yaakov's image did appear, but they didn't see it. They couldn't see it. Because when you're filled with rage, you can't even see the truth right in front of you. When you're filled with rage, it's like cataract and macular degeneration combined. When you're filled with rage, you can't see, you become blind to what's right in front of you. So Yaakov's image did appear to them like it appeared to Yosef. They simply couldn't see because they were filled with such anger and such rage. And we continue to suffer from that as we spoke about until today. But the Svarno is not satisfied. And the Svarno says, look at the Svarno. I say, look as if you have Mikros Gedolos. If you have Mikros Gedolos, look at the Svarno, Ravavadji Svarno, the great Italian commentator. And he writes here on this Pasuk, Paraglamadzayin Pasuk Yudches. And he says the following, they conspired, they were going to kill him. Now does it bother you? These are the Shifte Ka we're talking about. This is not some gang. This is not the mafia. This is not the lowest shear. This is not, not to say anything wrong with the lowest shear, I myself as a child was not a, right? Ma, I was not, Ma Tevakesh, I was not a great student. But meaning this is not the rejects. These are the Shifte Ka. These are the 12 tribes, the 11 tribes. These are the greatest. These are the individuals whose names are on the Choshen. The high priest wears them on his uniform in the holiest place in the world at the holiest time. And they conspired to kill their brother, to murder their brother in cold blood. Says the Svarno, the language of conspire tells us that this was premeditated. Premeditated. This was not self-defense. We know there was a very high-profile trial just now. This was not self-defense. This was premeditated murder. So it says this far enough, if you look at the grammar, if you look at the diktuk, you'll see. It reveals, do you know why the brothers felt that they could kill Yosef? It was not premeditated murder. They thought they were acting in self-defense. They believed that Yosef's dreams and that Yosef had his own, Yosef was conspiring himself to eliminate his brothers. They thought Yosef was going to kill them. 
and they therefore believed with all their heart that they were acting in self-defense. These great tribes whose names are on the Choshen, whose names appear before Hashem. How did they unite to conspire to kill their own brother? They didn't even feel bad afterwards. They didn't even have regret afterwards. Even later when they say we were guilty, they don't say we were guilty of what we tried to do. They feel guilty of how it turned out. We're guilty of the pain it caused our father. But they don't feel guilty that at the time they did the wrong thing. Says the Tzvorna, you know why? Because they say if we could do it again, we'd do it the same way because we thought he was trying to kill us. We were acting in self-defense. The Torah says, someone trying to kill you, rise and you can kill them. You can kill them, self-defense. So the Svarno says, and he tries to make a little bit more sense of what's going on for us. The Svarno says, do you know why the brothers felt justified in conspiring to kill Yosef? Self-defense, he was coming to kill them. Which begs the question that Revolba then asks. If the Svarno's right, that the brothers were acting in self-defense, then what'd they do wrong? What'd they do wrong? And how do we know they did wrong? Torah tells us they did wrong, but Asarahu Gemalchus, the Medrash Eicha tells us the ten martyrs, the hands of the Romans were paying the price of the terrible sin of these ten brothers. We continue to suffer from it until today. The baseless hatred, we know what they did was wrong. We know what they did is wrong. So if the Sforno is right, if, if, if the Sforno is right, his interpretation, that these brothers were acting in self-defense, then what did they do wrong? And listen to this insight by Revolba. Oh, it's unbelievable, this insight. So, Says Revolba, our core obligation is to study Torah, is to both read the surface, to read the simple understanding and meaning of the text, and to take a deep dive to try to understand what's going on beneath the surface of the text. And he says here, So the simple understanding is they considered him a rodef. He was coming to kill them. They were entitled in self-defense to kill him. But there was also some underlying drive that was kina, sinna, hisoros anochius, their ego, says Revolba, not me, says Revolba, their anochius, their ego got in the way. They were jealous. They were envious. They were arrogant. So he says, Revolba, he says, how do you know this? Go back to that word S. That word S has the two letters on top. So it tells us that, it tells us that on the surface, these brothers were going to check in on Yosef. On the surface, they thought they were acting in self-defense according to the Sforno. But just beneath the surface, they had an alternative motive, ulterior motive. Just beneath the surface, their act was laced with egocentric feelings. Their action was laced with egocentric feelings. They brought, the brothers had jealousy and hatred, even if it was subconscious. So the Torah is telling us we are responsible for our subconscious feelings as well. Even when we're doing the right thing, but if we're driven to do what is a justifiably right thing, but we're driven to do it for the wrong reason, then we are accountable for that. Even if the Sforno is right, that they were acting in self-defense, that Yosef was a rodef, at least they perceived it as such, nevertheless what they did was wrong. Why? Because their actions were laced with selfish motive, with envy, and with jealousy, and with arrogance. Midos are a very, very important factor, says Revolba. It's not just about what we do externally, it's about why we do it, what's driving us to do it. The personal, what we call it, the personal nagiyas. Personal nagiyas. You know, somebody has to do something. Somebody needs to be suspended from shul, from the community. A child needs to be, needs some time out at home. Who is the one who executes on that decision? Sometimes you say, you can't do it. You know why? You have personal nagiyas. Even though they deserve it, you have personal nagiyas here. You're biased. 
you'll get a certain joy from it. You have a certain hatred or jealousy in it. So we have to be aware of those feelings, even subconscious feelings, says Revolba. We are accountable for, and we have to be aware of even the subconscious feelings. And that we are accountable, even if we do a justifiable action, if we are doing it for a non-justifiable reason, then we are accountable. Rizalevichik has a different interpretation of Meirachok. Meirachok. The brothers saw him from a distance, from afar. Says the Rav, at the moment that he tried to come close to them, they rejected him. He appeared strange to his brothers. They could not perceive the beauty hidden in the soul of their younger brother. His sanctity was hidden behind the curtain of his external appearance, which intervened to hide the sublime and wondrous within him. The coat of many colors, the external covered what was taking place beneath. To his brothers, his beauty was merely superficial, a sun charming to the eye. Each one strode along to see him. Only his father understood that his handsome son with the flowing locks of hair, with the dream-filled eyes that revealed both soft refinement and great strength, was given to a vision beyond the boundaries of this world and was swept along in a strong storm of emotion, yearnings for redemption and transcendence. Only his father understood that the dream implanted within him was directed toward, not towards tangible goals, but towards a wholly pure existence. Only his father grasped that the deceptively attractive external reflected an inner light. You know, sometimes beauty is a liability. Sometimes charisma is a liability. It makes people cynical or sarcastic about you. It makes people believe that there's nothing beneath the surface, that there's no depth. And that was the mistake that the brothers had. They saw him, Vayiru Oso, Merachok. They saw him, they kept him at a distance, an arm's length away. Oh, you're the good looking, you're the charismatic, you're the charming, you're the jock, you're the this, you're the that. They never got to know the real him. They never got to see inside him. All they saw was the curated social media profile of Yosef. They didn't bother, and maybe Yosef didn't allow them to get inside who he really was. They only saw him, Meirachok. You know who got inside Yosef's inner chamber, inside his heart, who really understood him? His father. That's why his father was Shamir Sadavar. But Yosef walked around misunderstood. Yosef walked around lonely. Yosef walked around, he was very blessed. He was brilliant and good looking and charismatic and athletic and artistic and he had alamilis. He was one of the Mitsuyanim. And that sounds like it's an amazing asset. But for Yosef, it was also a liability because it left him feeling very alone. His own brother saw him from a distance. He's the other. He's the outsider. He's the one with the perfectly curated profile. He's the one who everything comes easy. They didn't let him in. The brothers thought the personal holiness, a pure heart and modest soul were inconsistent with Yosef's concern for his appearance. That you can't be handsome and charming and charismatic and also have depth and authenticity to you. They looked at their handsome sibling with suspicion. He was guilty of paying too much attention to his physical self, adorning himself, combing his hair and his desire to attract praise. He was guilty of displaying self-aggrandizing pride. The sun, the moon, the 11 stars. Even after his death, Yosef's real self remained hidden. He was always viewed from afar, a cold white statue devoid of warmth. The embalmers turned him into a frozen mummy and closed his coffin, we read at the end of Ayachi. No one recognized him for who he truly was. This description of the Rav is very painful. To think of his existential loneliness, to think how Yosef lived his life constantly feeling misunderstood, underappreciated, that people only saw him as skin deep. They only accepted of him what they saw on the surface, but there was so much more. And so here you have, again, see this conversation now in an entirely different way. The angel saying, Ma, ma, mevakesh. You want to succeed when you go down to Egypt? You have to always be a mevakesh. Constantly be reevaluating and recalibrating. What are you mevakesh? What are you searching? What are you seeking? Yosef says, You know what I want? The real me. What I want is not this amazing hairdo, all gelled up and handsome and beautiful. The real me is not this designer clothing or good looks. The real me is not this charisma, this oratory skill. The real me is not that I'm the captain of every team in school. You know what I want? I just want to fit in. I want to be understood. I want to belong. I want my place. And then the brothers come along. And while that's what Yosef wants, they refuse to give him his desire. They still see him as the outsider from afar, a distant, misunderstood. Misunderstood. Yosef's greatness is that he doesn't turn to a life of drugs because he feels he doesn't belong. I wish we had time to talk about this now, but you know, we have all around us and 
let's be honest, every community has within us enormous challenges with drugs, alcohol, addiction. People say, oh, Rabbi, you're one of the rabbis who talks a lot about recovery. I don't know. I, I, there's not a rabbi who doesn't interact a lot with recovery or people who need or belong in it. I don't think there's anything to be ashamed of. The only people who are, should be ashamed and the only stigma should be on the people who don't talk about recovery and who don't get the help they need when they need it. So very, very often, talk to people who turn to a life of addiction, who numb themselves or try to fill that vacuum and hole in their heart with some substance or behavior or addiction and ask them why they did it. And it begins with, I cannot tell you how many of those young people will tell you that when I was growing up and when I was in school, they saw me as the outsider. I never belonged. I could never break in. I was never understood. I was never comfortable in my own skin. I was never comfortable among friends. I wasn't even comfortable in my own family. And living with that discomfort regularly, I needed to ease that pain. I needed to relieve that pressure. And then I found alcohol or drugs or gambling or, or eating or, or intimacy or, or pornography. And that distracted me and that filled the hole in my heart. And you know what? I still didn't belong and I still wasn't understood, but at least now I didn't feel the pain. I could live with it. I can't tell you that's almost every young person, how it begins, what leads to it. So you can read this entirely differently. The story of Yosef. Yosef looked like he had it all. Who wouldn't want to be Yosef? But if you see it through that lens, Yosef did not have it all. He didn't have the one thing that he wanted the most. That when the angel says, what do you want the most? The one thing he wanted the most he didn't have and his brothers wouldn't let him have it. They didn't let him in. And if you fast forward the story of Ayachi, and when it seems that Yosef now should be on top and the brothers should have learned their lesson and finally should come around and now Yosef should finally have what he's wanted all along, he still doesn't. You know why? Because what do the brothers do after Yaakov dies? They break Yosef's heart into pieces. When Yosef thinks he's finally broken in and he thinks he has, he's one of the brothers, and the brothers come to him and they say, uh, Yosef, can we talk to you for a minute? Sure, what's up, brothers? All good, everything's been amazing, we're reunited, we're all good, we understand one another, we're one. I said, yeah, 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 all that stuff, but we need to tell you something. Dad, before he died, called us to his deathbed, he just wanted us to remind you that even after he's gone, don't kill us. Don't take revenge. Don't get even for what we did. And Yosef is devastated. He says, you think that all this time the only reason I haven't taken revenge is because of dad? You think I'm still an outsider? You're the outsider still to me? That all this time you think the only thing that's held me back from killing you is dad, is Abba? So much so that you need to lie and manufacture? Why is Yosef's heart particularly broken? Yosef knows that his father could not have said that. And why does Yosef know that his father could not have said that? Because Yosef never told his father what happened. So here was Yosef for all those years protecting his brothers, because that's what brothers do for one another. Real brothers who understand one another and love one another are loyal to one another. Real brothers have each other's back. Real brothers do not stab each other in the back. So Yosef's had his brother's back. And what has he come to learn at the end of his life? That the very thing he's craved all of his life, he still doesn't have. He knows his father couldn't have said that because he never told his father what happened because he acted like a brother. And they now break his heart because they're still not his brothers. When they say, Dad said, remind you, don't kill us. So it's, it's really a tragic reading in the way the Rav reads these three words, this whole exchange, Yosef with the angel and what he wants, what Yosef describes that he does want and that his brothers don't give it to him. It's absolutely, absolutely heartbreaking. Moving right along. Yosef is sold into slavery. They go back and they tell Yaakov, they present the bloody colored coat. They say that he was killed by an animal. And uh, we know that we invoke this at the Seder. We do several dippings. Karpas, Ksonas, Pasim. We dip it in salt water. Because we begin our Seder before we can celebrate freedom. We have to remember redemption. We have to remember how it all began with Seneschina, with hatred. And now our story is rudely interrupted by the story of Yehuda and Tamar. This is like theater. And the act, the curtain comes down on the story of the brothers with Yosef. He's sold in the pit. They go report falsely to Yaakov. He's pulled out of the pit. He's sold in the caravan of, of uh, merchants. And now the curtain comes down. And when it comes back up, we bring you to another scene. We pivot 
to another story, the story of Yehuda and Tamar. But before we get to it, before we get to it, somewhat enigmatically, we have two words. Two words. Perak Lamadzayin Pasuk Chavtes. And what are those two words? Vayashav Ruven. Vayashav Ruven. Last Ruven left it, they were trying to kill Yosef. Convinces him, throw him in a pit, don't kill him. Now he comes back to the pit. Uh oh. He comes back to the pit. There's no Yosef. He tears his garments because he didn't want Yosef dead. He's the one who had a whole plan to keep him alive. Where's Yosef? He goes to his brothers. He says, Where am I going to go? What am I going to do? We're in big trouble. What's going to happen? Where is Yosef? These two words, Vayashav Ruven. Ruven came back. Where was he? What happened? What do you mean he came back from the... The brothers seemed like they were doing this all together. We're going to kill him. Now let's throw him in a pit. Throw him in the pit. Now let's sell him into slavery. Ruven seemed to disappear between the throw him in the pit and the sell him into slavery. Where was he during this time? So Rashi tells us. You know where he was during this time? He was... He was sitting and he was crying. He was sitting and he was doing tshuva. He was sitting, fasting. He was sitting, fasting and learning and giving tzedakah and repenting. What did he have to repent for? Why did he have to repent? He disrespected his father in last week's parasha. In fact, the Medrash tells us, so the Medrash on the Navi Hoshea, Shuva Yisrael, that you, Reuven, are the first one to ever do tshuva, and because you opened the door to doing tshuva, now, because of that, your great-great-grandchild, your progeny will do tshuva, Hoshea, Shuva Yisrael. So Astro of Yaakov Yitzchak Ruderman, the Rosh Hashiva, the founder of Ner Yisrael, Baltimore, the Talmud of the Altar of Slabodka, the great Rav Ruderman in his Yeshur, and in the Yeshur in volume, Chelek Yud Zayin, quotes this Dvar Torah, it's in the Sitcha Elyon from Rav Ruderman, the Rosh Hashiva of Ner Yisrael. He says, Ruven's the first to do tshuva? What are you talking about? Adam Arishon did tshuva. Kayan did tshuva. Many did tshuva. What are you talking about? Ruven's the first to... Ata Pasachta B'tshuva. You, Ruvain, are the first to do tshuva, therefore in your merit, tshuva is introduced to the world. What are you talking about? What are you talking about? Says Rav Ruderman, the answer to this question is in the Gemara and Shabbos. Gemara and Shabbos, Daphne tells us that, If you say that Ruvain sinned, you're making a mistake. What does that mean, you're making a mistake? Doesn't the Torah tell us he sinned? What's the case? Rachel dies. Yaakov is so broken that his wife his beloved Rachel dies, that he moves his bed into whose tent? Bila, the maidservant of Rachel. If he can't be with Rachel, at least he could be with second best, Rachel's maidservant. Ruvain says, it's bad enough, Dad, that you had to marry a second wife, Aunt Rachel. It's bad enough you took on a second wife, Aunt Rachel. But now that she died, instead of permanently being with my mother Leah, you're with this maidservant, the Shifcha, Bila? So the text says, Vayishkav, that, that um, Ruvain lay with. But the Gemara says, if you read it simply like that, Eina Elatoa, you're making a terrible, terrible mistake. And why is that a terrible mistake? Why is that a terrible? Vayelach Ruvain Vayishkav as Bila Pilegesh Aviv. Ruvain went and he lay with Bila, the Pilegesh of his father. Vayishkav as Bila sounds like he was intimate with Bila. Ruvain's um, revenge against his own father, avenging the dignity of his mother, sounds like was that he was Vaishkav, he lay with, he slept with, he was intimate with Bila. But the Gemara says, if you read it that way, you're making a big mistake. You know what it means, Vaishkav, as Bila? It means he took the bed out of Bila's tent and he moved it back into Leah's tent. He took the bed out of Bila's tent and he moved it back into Yaakov's tent, into Leah's tent. God forbid he was not, he would never violate those moral boundaries. He would never disrespect his father. He would never disrespect his aunt's shivcha. Of course he didn't do anything like that. But in his father's, in his mother's defense, he took the bed and he moved it back to Leah's tent. But that was a mistake because that was disrespecting his own father's choice. 
And for that, he sat and he mourned and he grieved. So it says, Rav Ruderman, do you know what it means that he's the very first to do tshuva? Sometimes we make a mistake where we made a mistake and we did the mistake for the wrong reason. A person looked at the thing they shouldn't have looked at. A person did an act they shouldn't have done. A person crossed a line, a boundary they shouldn't have crossed. A person was dishonest on their taxes. A person crossed a moral boundary. We made a mistake because we gave into the Yetzirah. Sometimes we made a mistake because we thought what we did was right. We thought we were following not our Yetzirah, but our Yetzirah Tov. We thought we were defending dignity, standing up for the honor of Torah, practicing kibbut aim. We thought we were doing something righteous. But even when we think we're doing something righteous, sometimes we're wrong. Says Rav Rudiman, Ruvain is the first to do tshuva and admit he was wrong, even when he thought what he was doing was righteous. To do tshuva when you know what you did was wrong, ah, that many did before. But to do tshuva even when you thought what you did was right and righteous, psst, that's a whole new level of tshuva. And that's where Ruvain was. Ruvain wasn't here. That's why Vayashev Ruvain alabor. He had to return to the pit because he was sitting doing tshuva. He was broken. And that's so impressive to us that he was doing tshuva and he was broken. And why is that so impressive to us? Because he thought what he did was right. He did what he did with a sense of lishma. He did it lishma. He did it for the right reason, even if it was the wrong thing to do. And we're out of time. Out of time, even though there's so many more things to talk about. I have so many Dibri Torah in the Parsha. Alas, what can we do? All right, join us. Maybe I'm going to share what... Come to the Amuna Shir. Women are invited to the Living with Amuna for Women. Men, you could stay home and watch on your device. It's streamed, but the room is only for women. And uh, I have a Dvar Torah on the Parsha on Amuna. We're going to start with tomorrow. So if you still want more on the Parsha, check out Living with Amuna. First, Masila Shisharm, 8.15 tomorrow morning. Living with Amuna is 8.45. Behind the Bimuth of Machlas. Sadik of Yerushalayim. Rav Machlis is mind-boggling. Too good to be true almost. He's incredible. Tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Till next time, stay happy, stay healthy, and stay holy.